Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and as you're turning there, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this time that we have to gather around your word, to be amongst your people. I pray that you would bless the remainder of our time. Help us as we study your word. Give us something that will help us to be more like Jesus Christ. And we'll give you all the thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 20. Verse number 17, we are going to conclude the series on the Ten Commandments tonight. And before we focus on the Tenth Commandment, I want to zoom out for just a few, few minutes and reiterate something that I tried to establish at the beginning of the series. Anytime you talk about the law of God in a positive light, you run the risk of being labeled a legalist. But don't let that scare you. The law of God is a good thing. The law is good. And I think we harm ourselves by not embracing the law in a, in a proper way, in a way that we ought to embrace it. And I've heard some Christians say something to the effect of, I am a New Testament Christian or a New Testament Baptist, uh, and I'm not under law. And while everything stated there might be true, it is true, it reflects an attitude that is wrong towards the law of God. That spirit is not a right one to have towards the law of God. The law is good. It is beneficial even to those of us in the church age. The law is good, first of all, because it reveals the character of, uh, the character of God. Each law that we have considered already and the one we will consider tonight are rooted in the character of God. They reveal something to us about who God is. The first commandment tells us that God is a jealous God that he will not share his glory. The second tells us that God refuses to receive worship in a wrong way. The third tells us that God is honorable and holy, and he is worthy of respect. The fourth, the Sabbath, tells us that God is a working, resting God, uh, who also claims lordship over our time. The fifth commandment tells us that God is a father. He is a perfect father, and he demands our honor and respect as our father. The sixth reminds us that each human is a reflection of the image of God and that God is sovereign over all matters of life and death. The seventh reminds us that God is a faithful and covenant-keeping God, a covenant-keeping husband. The eighth tells us that the Lord is a faithful provider, that he will take care of all of our needs. The ninth tells us that God is truth, that he will not tolerate any lies or anything, any type of deception. The tenth, as we will consider tonight, teaches us that God is the source of joy and that He can satisfy our deepest longings. So these commandments and the law in general reflect the character of God. That's why they're so important, because they tell us something about who our God is. Uh, but it also tells us that because it is a reflection of our God, that they do not change. They do not change because God does not change. And just as God does not change, the law that reflects his character does not change as well. If you think about it, how ridiculous a notion it is that the law of God fades away. Is there a time in God's kingdom where he will ever permit the worship of a false god in his presence? No, because that's who he is. He will not share his glory with any other false, false god. So the law shows us something about God. It reveals the character of God. But the law is also good because it shows us how to live. The law was given to a people that had been redeemed from the or redeemed out of the nation of Egypt. That's an important point. The law was not given as a means of their redemption. 
It was given to them after they had already been redeemed as a way, uh, as, as a means of showing them how to live away in, in, in such a way that was honorable of their Redeemer, in such a way that was worthy of the redemption that God had provided them. And for us as New Testament Christians, the law applies in the same way. Uh, the law does not save us. It has no part in our salvation. But we are already redeemed. And when we are already redeemed, the law shows us how we can live our lives in such a way that it is worthy and honorable of our great Redeemer. But the law is also good because it reveals our sinfulness. We tend to focus on the one major limitation of the law, and that is that it cannot save us. Yet even in the area of salvation, the law is useful, plays a critical role in our salvation. In the law, there is no strength. It has no ability to empower you to keep the law. It simply says what the law is, and whether you keep it is up to you uh, and up to your own strength. We find, of course, that in each and every one of us, we do not have the strength. We do not have the power in and of ourselves to keep the law of God. But worse than that with the law, uh, worse than that though, is that when we mix the law with our flesh, we get a nasty combination. Paul says such in Romans chapter 7. He says, is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I not known sin, but by the law. For I not know lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. Now concupiscence is a word that we don't use often or hardly ever in our modern vernacular, but the word means strong desire. And what Paul is saying is that when he learned what the law said, when he learned what the law forbade in his life, somehow, some way, all of a sudden, his flesh, a part of who he was, wanted to do that which was forbidden to do. Now one might suggest that if the law provokes us or if it stimulates us to sinfulness, then why shouldn't we just do away with the law entirely? If the law stimulates sinfulness in our sinful, sinful hearts, then let's set aside the law. Let's not preach the law because the law is what brings out the sinfulness. But the, mis the, uh, the, um, uh, the misunderstanding there is that the law does not create the sinfulness that is in our heart. The law simply reveals the sinfulness that is in our heart. With or without the law, the sinfulness is there. It is only when the law is established and the law is made known to us that our sinfulness is made known to us as well. So the problem isn't the law. The problem is in our sinfulness. And the law is good because I would like to know that I am sinful and that there is a Savior that can remedy the problem of my sinfulness. So the Holy Ghost uses the law as a tool to convict us of our sinfulness and to point us to, to our Savior. So the law is good. The law is not a relic of the past. The law is not a tool of the legalist. It is good. It is a gift from God when we use it properly, and we are the wiser for studying it. So we come tonight to the 10th commandment found in Exodus 20, verse number 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now the 10th commandment really hits as a surprise to us. If you back up to the 6th commandment, it begins, the 6th commandment begins a pattern of brevity in the remainder of the commandments. The 6th and the 8th commandment are four words apiece. 
The seventh commandment is five words. The ninth commandment is nine words. Collectively, these four commandments are a total of 22 words. When you come to the tenth commandment, however, it dramatically breaks from that pattern of brevity that began in the sixth through the ninth. The tenth commandment is a 33, 33 words all together. And the essence of the command can really be established or stated in a much more succinct or uh, much more brief way than it is stated in verse number 17. We could simply say, Thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor's, and establish what is uh, a seemingly the essence of the tenth commandment. And yet, in this verse, the Lord uh, carefully lists certain things that we are not to covet. He gives us three pairs. Uh, a house, a neighbor's house, neighbor's wife, neighbor's manservant, neighbor's, neighbor's maidservant, neighbor's ox, and neighbor's ass. And then he lists a seventh thing, which simply summarizes everything and all things that we cannot covet, and that is anything that belongs to the neighbor. Stylistically, the tenth commandment is similar in a way to the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, because in the fourth commandment, there is also a list of seven things that are supposed to rest on the Sabbath day, six people, one animal, six types of people, one animal. And the emphasis or the point of both of these lists, I believe, is not to be an exhaustive list of what is to rest or in the Tenth Commandment, what we are not to covet, but rather it is meant to be, it is meant to establish an emphasis that in the, in particular the Fourth Commandment, that the, the covenant people of the nation of Israel are not to work on the Sabbath day. He emphasizes that by listing them. And in the Tenth Commandment, the emphasis is the same as that you and I are not allowed to covet anything. That is the point. And in fact, the emphasis is made in the Tenth Commandment in a unique way from the rest of the commandments. It is only in the Tenth Commandment where we find the essence of the covenant or the command uh, uh, stated twice. He states in verse number 17, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet. He states, Thou shalt not covet twice, and he doesn't do that with any of the other commandments in the rest of the of the Ten Commandments. So the point is this, don't covet. You can't covet. It's a clear emphasis that you cannot covet. It is prohibited, it is forbidden, it is forbade in the covenant people of God. So considering the final commandment, let me give you three thoughts or three headings as we think about this commandment. First of all, the characteristics of covetousness. The characteristics of covetousness. What we find in the Tenth Commandment is a regulation of desire a regulation of desire. And that is a notable departure from the rest of the Ten Commandments. Because in all of the other commandments, outward behavior, behavioral sins, are what is forbidden in the other nine commandments. We've repeatedly mentioned, as we have studied these, that, that though the external behavior is regulated explicitly, it can be applied and implied that the Lord cares about what is in our hearts as well. We know that certainly to be the case because the Lord Jesus applied the Ten Commandments to the heart. He applied them to our inner desires, not just our outward behaviors. However, in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, these applications, these, these inner desire applications are not explicitly mentioned as being forbidden in these commandments. But that changes when we come to the Tenth Commandment where there is no external behavior that is prohibited, but there is an inward desire that is prohibited instead. Now don't, make the, don't, don't mistake the point here. The other nine, though they deal with the outward behavior, and though this one deals with the inner desire, don't, 
don't think that that means that God cares more about our outer behavior than he does our inner desire because there's nine to one. That ratio is a little off. But, but, but simply, it, it tells us that the, the inclusion of the Tenth Commandment, that God does, in fact, care about what we think and about, we, about what we want. So the command is, thou shalt not covet. Now, coveting is a word that we don't use very often in our vocabulary. We use similar words like jealousy or envy a little bit more often. And though these are similar words, they're not identical. They have differences in meaning. Jealousy has to do with our own stuff. We jealously guard what is ours. We protect it from others. And jealousy is not always bad. Uh, God is a jealous God. In fact, His name is Jealous. And that is because He guards what belongs to Him and Him alone. But jealousy is not always good. It can be bad because when we hoard what should be shared, that is a bad and sinful form of jealousy. And then there is envy. Envy is directed towards others, towards the possessions, the reputation, the relationships of, of others. It is a sort of hatred or resentment towards others' goods, relationships, or reputation. An envious person would rather see their neighbor's reputation destroyed than to see their neighbor's reputation gained. They would rather see their neighbor's house destroyed than to see them get a, a bigger house or a, a better house. Envy causes us to resent others. It causes us to hate others. And whereas with jealousy we must, we must leave room for jealousy in the life of the believer, there's a little bit of room for jealousy in our hearts. There is no room whatsoever for envy in our hearts. There is no, uh, no allowance for envy in the heart of, of the Christian. And it is envy and covetousness that are particularly connected the resentment that we find in envy is very oftentimes traced back to covetousness. Usually when you see envy, it is because there is a covetous heart at the root of that envy heart, envious heart. See, covetousness is the desire to have something that does not belong to you. Uh, and what covetousness does is it provokes envy. Because you have what I don't have, I resent you for having what I do not have. And let's be clear here, covetousness is not desire. There is a distinction between covetousness and desire. Desire is good. God made us with natural desires. I have a desire to eat food. That is a good desire. And desire can, can provoke and promote good activities in our lives as long as they are ordered by the chief desire to glorify, to, to glorify God. We are made with natural desires. But when we see covetousness come alive in our hearts is when those natural desires become inordinate. They become excessive. They become selfish. That is when our desires become covetousness. If I could summarize covetousness this way, it is when our desires are directed towards things that God has not permitted or that God has not provided for, we are covetous. Let me say that again. We are covetous when we, when we want things that God has not permitted or things that God has not provided for, that is when we are covetous. And in the text we see that there are seven specific things that the Lord prohibits us to covet. And the list is not meant to be exhaustive, but rather to be representative of the things that we are not to covet. Uh, we see in this list the things that, are, that we would classify as possessions. This is the one that we understand. We understand very well in our consumerist culture because 
This is what we do. We covet things. We live in a materialistic society. So in a world where credit cards enable us to spend the money that we do not have, and in a world where we have invented phrases like the American dream or keeping up with the Joneses, it is at least easy to recognize the sin of covetousness in our culture. It is, in, it is part of the warp and woof of our culture. The second category mentioned in verse number 17, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, is the area of relationships. And it reveals to us, verse 17 reveals to us, that lust itself is a, a certain kind of covetousness. It is, a fundam it is fundamentally a desire for a relationship that belongs to someone else that does not belong to you. And then we see the seventh thing that you can covet. You cannot covet anything that is your neighbor's, which covers everything else that we are not to covet, whether it is our neighbor's natural beauty, their natural charisma, their athleticism, or just generally anything else that does not belong to you, you are not allowed to covet. So the characteristics of covetousness. But consider, secondly, the condition of covetousness. The condition of covetousness. And whether we want to admit it or not, humanity is eaten up with covetousness. And the best place to see humanity, to see human nature at its rawest form without the cloak and cover of civility is the nursery. You want to see what human nature is made up, you go to the nursery. You go into the nursery tonight and you go in there with two children and there is a seemingly innumerable amount of toys for those two children to play with. And you give one toy, one to or one toy to one child in one corner of the room, and then you go to the other corner of the room, and you give the other child a different toy, both of those children will likely be very content with the toy that you have given them. They may play with that toy for five minutes, they may play with it for ten minutes, until their eyes are lifted and they locate the child on the other side of the room with a different toy that is not theirs. And all of a sudden, the satisfaction in that child's heart with the toy that they're playing with has just become, it's become sadness. It's become despair almost. And that child will set that toy aside and it will begin the long trek to the other side of the nursery where he will then violate the seventh commandment, or not the seventh, the eighth commandment, and he will steal that toy from, from the other, other child. We see in little children that covetousness is natural. It's not something that has to be nurtured in a child. It is natural. It is hereditary. It has been passed down from our father Abraham, we, or our father Adam. We also see this when, uh, in a nursery as well. If you pick up one child and you embrace, one, embrace that child, another child will also resent you for that, resent that other child for that, and will want that loving embrace for him or herself. Covetousness is natural. It is hereditary. It is something in all of us. And as we get older, we learn not to go and snatch things that we want from other people from out of their hands, but the desire is still there in the heart of every person. We see it in our world. If a, if a celebrity wears a certain kind of shirt, the manufacturer of that shirt better be stocked up because they're going to sell out. A newer form of this would be social media influencers. Uh, you might find somebody on social media that has just found a product that has changed their life. Never mind they're being paid to tell you that. 
but it has just changed their life and all of a sudden it is going to change your life when you get it and you can't live without it. We upgrade our phones, our watches, our other technological devices as soon as the new one comes out, not because there's any defect in our old one, but because we see somebody else enjoying their new one and we want that enjoyment for ourselves. But the satisfaction that comes from fulfilling our covetous, covetous desires quickly passes away because that shiny new object that satisfies us or that fulfills the satisfaction quickly becomes dull and boring and we have to pursue the next shiny object as well. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, he said, things are in the saddle and they ride mankind. And how true that is. It is not we that ride the things, it is the things that ride us. And though you feel like you are in control, when covetous desire begins to take root in your heart, it is in control. It takes control, it takes the reins of your will. Consider what Asaph said in Psalms chapter 73, verses 2 and 3. He said, But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. How crazy is it? Yet? How crazy is it that Asaph, a servant of the Most High God, was envious of the foolish? Envious of the foolish. What are you envious of the foolish, foolish for? They should be envious of you. You should have pity on, on the foolish, on the wicked. And he was envious of the foolish because they were prospering. Because there was prosperity in their life and Asaph wanted that prosperity for himself. Covetousness distorts our sight. It blinds us to the reality that spirituality, spiritual things are better for us. When you look at the majority of athletes and actors in this world and you long for the wealth and the popularity that they have, you forget that many of them live detestable lives. They are morally reprehensible in many, many ways. And yet, even Christians are pushing their children down paths to pursue the things that these athletes and these actors and these uh, these well-known people, well-known people of the world have attained to. You want that? You want a life of wealth, a, a life of riches that is void of God? Or do you want a life that is full of God? And you may or may not have riches with it. Covetousness causes us to be spiritually blind. But yet another problem with covetousness is that because it is a sin of the heart, because it is a sin of of the mind, we so very oftentimes sanitize it in our own minds. We make it seem to be less dirty, less dangerous than it actually is. I mean, let's be honest. When you consider the Ten Commandments, you have murder, you have adultery, you have theft, you have perjury, and you have covetousness. Now, one of these kind of seems out of place if we're being honest, doesn't it? It seems to be a lesser sin than the other, than the other four. And in a sense, it is different because it's a sin of desire. It's not a sin of behavior like the other sins are. Those other sins are tangible. They're measurable. You can, you can see those sins very oftentimes. It is the sin of covetousness that is intangible, that is harder to measure in our hearts. But we should remember that all tangible sins, all tangible sins, all sins of behavior start as sins of the heart. Behavior does not do without desire or duty. 
And covetousness is very oftentimes the desire that leads to the sins of behavior. Uh, in, in fact, if we consider all ten commandments here, all of the other nine commandments, we could plausibly make a case that covetousness leads to all other nine. When you consider the first commandment, we worship other gods because we covet something so much that it becomes our God. Right. When we make images of God or we take God's name in vain, it is because we covet the glory of God for ourselves. Amen. When we break the Sabbath commandment, it is because we covet material goods so much that there is no time to rest. When we dishonor parents, it is because we covet their God-given authority. When we murder, it is because we covet the life of another. When we commit adultery, it is because we covet the spouse of another. When we steal, it is because we covet the goods of another. When we lie, it is because we covet the reputation of others. And it's not just that these behavioral sins that can be traced back to sins of desire in every single case. We do not do without a desire or duty. But what we find is that covetousness or sins of desire of all kinds multiply. They do not just lead to one sin of desire, but they oftentimes lead to many sins of desire. Covetousness does not merely transform into theft, but covetousness multiplies in idolatry, murder, theft, lying, envy, jealousy, hatred, and a host of other sins as well. You consider the story of Ahab and Naboth. Ahab saw the vineyard of Naboth and he wanted it for his own. He wanted to grow vegetables in Naboth's vineyard. So Ahab went to Naboth and proposed that he would buy the vineyard from Naboth at a fair price or give him another vineyard of like value in another part of the kingdom of Israel. Naboth, though, knew the word of God, knew that he was not supposed to sell the land that was given, given to him. And so Naboth refused the offer of Ahab. So Ahab at the realization that he was not going to get what he so longed for, so yearned for in his heart, went back to his royal palace and threw a pity party. He couldn't even eat. He was so distraught that he was not able to get what his heart so badly wanted. Once Jezebel, the wicked king Jezebel, realized what was the cause of Ahab's sorrow, she took matters into her, her, her own hands. Jezebel bribed a couple of men into accusing Naboth of blasphemy. And he was speedily put to death, speedily stoned in Israel, after which Ahab finally got his vineyard. So what do we have here? We have one little sin of, one little sin of covetousness, just a little sanitized sin of covetousness that leads not only to theft, but it led to perjury, it led to murder, and it led to, uh, led to theft as well. So it is with covetousness in our own hearts. It's so very often times is just the root that springs up and manifests as many, other, uh, as many other sins, whether they be sins of desire or sins of behavior. And I'm saying tonight that we need to understand that covetousness is corrosive to our soul. It destroys our souls. We must be, we must be on guard against the sin of covetousness. In fact, the first sin in human history can be traced to the sin of covetousness. Genesis 3 verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat and gave also to her husband and he did eat. Eve wanted 
what God had not permitted for her to have. And because she wanted what she was not allowed to have, she destroyed her entire world. The ugly reality of covetousness is that in your pursuit of more or better things, the things that you do not have and are not permitted to have, you will ultimately end up losing what God wanted you to have in the first place. In Luke chapter 12, the Lord makes a statement about covetousness, and then He follows it with a parable. He says this in Luke 12, 15. He said unto them, Take heed, beware of covetousness. For a, life, for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Your life is more than your stuff. But covetousness blinds us to that reality, and it directs our wills, it directs our desires, our ambitions towards stuff, towards more things that ultimately have no eternal value in our life. Covetousness has no regard for eternal matters. The parable that follows in Luke chapter 12 is the story of the rich man who, who is overwhelmed with his goods, so he decides to tear down his barns and build bigger barns so that he can store even more stuff. And of course, in the parable, the Lord comes to that rich man and says, your soul is going to be required of you today and, and calls him a fool. In the summary, I think there's a question asked in that parable that really summarizes the point that Jesus is trying to make very well. Because in that parable, the Lord asks the rich man this question. He says, then whose, after your soul is required of you, then whose shall these things be? What a wonderful question that we ought to ask ourselves every day. Whose are these things going to be after I am gone, after I am dead? How are you going to protect your possessions from the next person that covets them from you? How are you going to keep them out of their hands? How are you going to guard them from the next covetous person? And the Lord sums that parable up in Luke chapter 12, verse 21. He says this, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. And what covetousness will cause you and I to do is deposit our treasures into ourselves. It will cause us to keep depositing our goods into our own bank, into our own, uh, into, into ourself rather than into heaven and God. You see, covetousness will cause us to live in the constant syndrome of what we might call if only. If only I had a bigger if I had a better job. If only I had a bigger house. If only I made just a little bit more money. And what God wants for each and every one of us is for us to deposit our treasure into heaven. It is for us to lay our treasures at the feet of God. To not lay our treasures at our own feet where rust and, moth, rust and moth doth corrupt, where we will eventually lose every earthly possession that we have, but to put it at the feet of the Lord God. But if you continue to covet, if you continue to succumb to covetousness in your own, own heart, you will grow old and you will realize that you have wasted your entire life. You will have thrown away every single opportunity that you had to deposit your treasure with God. So covetousness is corrosive to the soul. But let me close with this third consideration, the cure to covetousness. And the cure is very simply this, contentment. Contentment. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. doesn't lead to great gain. It is great gain. 
And contentment is wanting for ourselves, not what we want for ourselves, but what God wants for us. It is yielding of our will and desires to His plan and His provision in our life. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For He hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The Hebrew author there says that the reason <clears throat> that you and I should be content is, to beca is because that you and I have God with us. And if we have the presence of God with us, what more do we need? How are we, how are we covetous of any other thing other than the presence of Almighty God? And ultimately, this tells us that covetousness is a theological issue. Covetousness is not just about things. It's not just about stuff or reputation or relationships in this, this life. It is about our attitude and our relationship with the Lord God. When we are covetous, it is ultimately an expression that we are dissatisfied with the Lord God. And I want to close tonight with a consideration of Psalm 73. And if you will turn with me there, because I think in Psalm 73, we, we see great admonition to us of our covetous hearts. In Psalm 73, we've already read a couple verses from here, verses 2 and 3. In verse number 12, we see Asaph says this, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Asaph, as he writes this psalm, is perplexed by the fact that the wicked, the ungodly, are successful or seemingly successful in this life. In verse 3, as we mentioned earlier, he said that he was envious of the foolish and the wicked. But as Asaph goes on, he acknowledges the cure to covetousness. In verse number 22, Asaph says, So foolish was I and ignorant, I was, uh, I, was, I was as a beast before thee. So Asaph acknowledges the foolishness of his covetousness. As we see in verse number 23 to 28, we'll just read these verses quickly. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee, speaking of the Lord God. I am continually with thee, thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw, nigh, uh, draw near to God... I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. When Asaph went into the house of the Lord, he realized the many blessings that he had that the wicked did not have. Yeah, they might have seemed to be prospering outside of the house of God, but Asaph had the Lord God on his side. The Lord God was holding his hand, guiding him through life. The Lord God was seeing that he was going to reach his eternal destiny. And when Asaph realized this wonderful truth that I have God, he realized that he needed nothing else in this life. He says, There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God. Do you see the cure there? The cure to covetousness is feasting our eyes upon the Lord God. It is drawing nigh unto Him. Remember that He is watching over us and He is providing for us what we need. 
You know, has it ever occurred to you that maybe the reason the Lord is not giving you what you so badly covet is because He knows that if He gives it to you, you get your eyes off depositing treasure into heaven. We need to trust the provision of God. That sometimes He blesses us with material possessions and at other times He withholds that hand of blessing. And when He does so, we are assured, because we trust God, that He does it for our own good. That He withholds what we cannot handle for ourselves. So the cure to covetousness is contentment. Be content with what God has provided. But most importantly, be content with God Himself. Trust His hand.